We're going to continue our uh, study this morning on storyline. And uh, this morning we're going to be focusing on the theme of kingship in the Bible. And I think this will help you understand really the middle section of your Old Testament. Uh, first and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Many of the Psalms reflect on the theme of kingship. And so if we understand what these stories are about and what they're pointing to, you'd be surprised how much uh, more rich the Old Testament might become for you, okay? Now, over the last several weeks, what we've been doing in each of these installments is we've been taking a theme and we've been tracing it through Scripture to see how God evolves and adds to and expands each particular theme. Let, let's just do a quick review. What are some of the themes that we've covered that you might remember? What are some things that we've covered in this series? I'll start. We start out by talking about Jesus' approach to the Old Testament, that he himself is the fulfillment of all of it, right? We talked about that in Luke 24. What are some themes we've covered thus far in our series on storyline? Covenant? Yeah, that was a two-parter, right? All the old covenants, and then we spent a whole week on the new covenant. Other thoughts? What are some other themes we've covered? Not everyone at once. Nope, nope, that was on the list. I thought about it. Um, we've talked about creation a lot. What else? Temple, that's right, that was last week. Good. Sacrifice, good, Rick. Priesthood, that's right. You're looking at notes, aren't you? That's right. See, church family, this is why, I've said this before, and it's always been when Sid's answered, and Ruth, I think, Take notes so that way you can act like you remember when the pastor asks a question, right? I mean, it's a good incentive to take notes. Uh, is there anything I'm missing? Temple, sacrifice, covenant too. I think that's about all of them. Next week, no, next week is Bill Prater. Two weeks from now, we're going to have a two-parter on the land of Israel. Talk about that theme. That's a really uh, important theme for us to get down how the Bible views that theme uh, because if we misinterpret that, it affects prophecy and all sorts of different things. And so we're going to talk about the land of Israel, the next two installments. And then we're going to talk about uh, the theme of uh, resurrection. What's interesting to me is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And at first hand, none of us can think of very many messianic prophecies that talk about the resurrection. A lot of them talk about his death his priestly ministry, his kingship, but we kind of struggle to find resurrection themes in the Old Testament, and yet resurrection is everywhere. We're going to talk about that in a, a future installment, and then we're going to end talking about the theme of marriage, how marriage points forward to the gospel, and how it points forward all the way to the very end, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that'll be a good transition because our next series together, starting in mid-October, will be a uh, eight to 10 week series probably on marriage. And I think it'd be good for us as a church family to address that topic. And I think that'll be helpful to many of us, okay? Um, what you've probably noticed in all of those themes, haven't we, is that there's a lot of overlap, right? The idea of temple and sacrifice and priesthood, there was some overlap to those, wasn't there? Uh, understanding those themes. And then also, you've probably understood that in a lot of these lessons, we keep returning to some of the same passages in the Bible, right? I mean, every lesson we start out talking about who in the Old Testament? He's one of the OG characters in the Old Testament. Every lesson we start 
at what part of Scripture? Adam. That's right. Creation and Adam. We always seem to start there. And then a lot of our lessons, we end up somewhere with David, right? Um, And every lesson we talk about the major prophets and their prophets, of course, all of them end with Christ. And that's something we should expect, right? Because in every big story, which we're talking about how the Bible is one big story, there are major scenes, that really move the plot forward, right? And are very important to the story. And so today we're going to talk about what I think might be the most dominant theme in Scripture. If we could say that covenant is the way that Scripture outlines itself, I would say that kingship is one of the most dominant themes in Scripture. And those two coming together, kingdom through covenant, probably meld and summarize the message of the Bible. So what I want to do today is I want to break down in two halves. The line of succession of kings in the Bible— how this idea of kingship evolves through different individuals in the scriptures. And then I want to end, and really we could flip-flop these around if we wanted to, looking at Psalm 2 and understanding what God's purpose for the king was, whether it was Adam or Christ. We're going to see how Psalm 2 really reflects on that, and it's one of those psalms that is focused on the king's reign over Israel, okay? So let's talk about the line of succession. We start first with Adam, who is the first king. Adam is the first king. It doesn't surprise us because every lesson has started with Adam and with Eve. That's why uh, the, the, the beginning of the story is always really important. But why do we view Adam as a king? Because a lot of us, we don't view him that way. And we're going to spend a little less time on this because we talked about it in our Genesis series. So if you don't remember this, you either weren't listening good, weren't taking notes like Sid does, or you could probably listen to our sermon on the website on the end of Genesis 1. There's a couple reasons we see Adam as a king. We talked about in our Genesis series how that idea of the image of God was a label that was applied to kings who reflected the glory of the God they served. The image of God, that is a kingly idea. And then we talked about how in Genesis 1.28, God gives Adam the first command which is not to, he's not talking about the tree yet. God's first command to Adam is to, in a kingly way, to reign, to subdue all the king, all the earth, to subdue the animal creation, the plant creation God just made. And really what is embedded in that idea is that Adam was supposed to take the beauty of the Garden of Eden, the order of the Garden of Eden, and subdue all of the earth to be like the Garden of Eden. So we see Adam as a king. And of course, Adam's kingly traits are passed on to Noah. We'll see this in Genesis 9, that God almost repeats himself. All the things he said to Adam, he says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. All of this stuff, be in the image of God. And then we're going to see next, this line of succession is Abraham, who I call a proto-king, a proto-king. Now, why on earth do we think Abraham's a king? Because It's not like in the scripture it's said that he's King Abraham, right? They never refer to him as King Abraham. I want you to think about this. In Genesis, the story of Genesis presents Abraham doing a lot of kingly things. Early on in his story, he's presented as a leader of an army going head to head with the top dogs in the Middle East and winning. And then it ends with him receiving a kingly tribute from the king, uh, Leomer, right? And then there's what's interesting about that is not only is Abraham rescuing Lot and conquering kings and nations, 
But we see the promise that God has for Abraham in Genesis 17, 6, which in some way gives us the expectation that he's a proto-king because God says to Abraham, I'll make the exceeding fruitful. Now, what does that remind us of in Genesis 1? What does God tell Adam and Eve to do? Be fruitful, multiply. And so really Abraham, we'll talk about this more in the lesson on the land. Abraham is a new Adam and he's trying to accomplish the same things Adam was called to do. And God is going to make Abraham fruitful. But then he says, I'm gonna make kings out of you. Kings will come from you. This same verse is repeated in Genesis 35, 11 for Jacob, uh, his descendant. And then in Genesis 49, 10, his great, great, great grandson, I think Judah His father, Jacob, says to Judah in Genesis 49, 10, that the scepter, what is a scepter? It's a kingly rod, right? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall be the gathering of the people. So this sets up the expectation that from Abraham's family would be kings, Well, this is interesting. There's no king of Israel until a lot later in the scriptural story, but this theme of king is already showing up early on in the pages of scripture. Well, Abraham, his descendants really only number 70 people by the time Genesis ends. But God told Abraham that he would make of him a great what? Nation. So so Exodus opens, and Exodus opens with the story of multiplication. The people, even in the land of Egypt, were multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And by the time they leave Egypt, they're a great nation, millions of people. Well, there's still no king, but who is in charge of this nation in Exodus? Moses, right? I call Moses a pseudo-king. Moses is kind of like Abraham. He's not called a king, but he certainly, in in maybe even more ways than Abraham, functions as one, right? Here's Moses, and he's doing diplomatic uh, negotiations with the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. That sounds like a king, doesn't it? And then Moses is the one who's ruling over his people. He was God's representative uh, from the people to God. And then he was God's representative to the people. So God was dealing directly with Moses rather than dealing directly with the nation of Israel. He was working through a mediator. He was working through Moses. Moses exhibits this national authority. And so what what Moses is trying to get us to see in the Pentateuch is that he is in some ways pointing to a future king. In fact, it's Moses who wrote Deuteronomy 17, according to the word of the Lord, And in Deuteronomy 17, God gives instructions about how the king should act. Well, hold on a second. God has laws for a king, but there's no king. Well, that's because God always planned on there being a king. Now, what's interesting about that is when you read 1 Samuel, what does it say? That the the nation of Israel, they wanted a king like the nations. And if you're reading that without thinking super deep about what you just read in Deuteronomy, you're thinking that God is mad at the people because they asked for a king. God is not mad at the people because they asked for a king. God is angry at the people because they asked for a king like the nations. God always intended for his people to have a king, 
But he gives them, according to the desires of their heart, a king like the nations. And who's that first king of Israel who's a lot like the nations? Saul. This is a man that in, from the very beginning of his story, he's portrayed quite literally by Samuel, who writes the book of 1 Samuel as a moron. This is a guy who can't even find his father's donkey. This is a guy who doesn't even know where the prophet of God is. This is a guy when he's anointed for the biggest task in Israel, hides. Friend, that's not humility. That is someone running from their job. This is guy's a moron, right? And really all the kings that preceded him, the rulers, the judges were kind of the same way, right? If you read the book of Judges, there's these other pseudo kings that rise up because there's this loose confederacy of, of tribes, but they would gather together to ward off the different enemies that were entering the country because the people were not living in godliness. But then the ideal king shows up and that ideal king is David. David. And David is presented in scripture as the ideal king. And in some ways, Solomon as well. That's why so many of the Psalms talk about David, but really they're talking about Christ because in the eyes of Israel, David was that ideal king. It is David who's from the tribe of Judah. Remember Jacob said, the scepter won't depart from you, Judah. And it is David who is from the tribe of Judah. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. David in all of first and second Samuel, if we ever get to preach through that, shows us in those books how David in so many ways is this ideal king. His life in many ways, at least the good ones, is supposed to be an early shadow of that future messianic king. We read that David is a man after God's own heart. We read that David is a man of the word, which really is what Deuteronomy 17 was getting across. We know that David authored many of the book of Psalms right? And we know David is a man who had a passion for God's glory. And it was David who wanted God's house to reflect the glory of his own house. But David's story doesn't end like that, does it? Because sadly, though David shared all of those good qualities, David had some of the bad qualities that Deuteronomy 17 not, said not to have. Deuteronomy 17 says, don't multiply horses or chariots or wives, and David was pretty good at all of those. He had a lot of women, a lot of chariots, a lot of horses, and his son Solomon takes after him quite well. But even despite David's faults, God cuts a covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7 and promises to establish the kingdom of David forever. But there's a lot of descendants from David who sat on the throne, and I would call them pitiful kings, pitiful kings, because none of them really, other than Solomon, rose to the level of quality of their father, David. And so here's what I'm trying to help you with, church. The whole point of this series is not just to have cool, like, understanding of the Bible. It's for you to be able to read your Old Testament. So why on earth do we have all of these stories about all of these kings? God is showing that he was faithful to that covenant he made with David. And what was the covenant he made with David? Not just that he would establish the, his throne forever, which was an unconditional promise, but that all of the kings would be viewed as his son, God's son. And, and that God promised that if they would obey, he would bless them. If they would disobey, he would chastise them with whips. He would not let them get away with it. And we see that exemplified in the story of the kings of Israel. All of the bad kings, bad stuff happens. 
And there's so many of them, so many bad kings. And as you read through the Kings and Chronicles, they just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And what's even worse is that none of them sit on the throne forever. So even when a good guy shows up, like Joash, in the middle of a whole cycle of bad kings, when Joash dies, the nation turns against God again, showing us that God was not looking just for a good king who is earthly, but for an eternal king who is godly. These pitiful kings. Well, as the prophets begin writing in the time of exile and even prior to it, they start to recognize that this this king guy is not really holding up. He's not doing a whole lot of good. That the earthly kings that they had seen aren't really doing the job God said should be done. Clearly, even David and Solomon and all these other guys aren't getting it done. They're not the king who's going to usher in that idealistic kingdom that David was so close to ushering into. And so we see in the prophets that they are pointing to, don't mind my picture that I forgot to delete, they're pointing to a promised king. They start pointing to a promised king that would restore the kingdom to Israel, that would be that ideal king who would seek after God's own heart. He would offer himself as a sacrifice for the people and he would restore the kingdom that God wanted for his people. And that's when this term that we might be familiar with starts showing up, Messiah. You know, what do we call Jesus often in the Gospels? He's Jesus what? Well, just in case you didn't know this, Christ is not his last name. Christ is a technical Old Testament term for the anointed one. Now, this will help you read your Gospels too. When Mark or Matthew or Luke or John calls him the Christ, That is saying something huge. Uh, I was just studying, because we're going to study the gospel of Mark in our Wednesday night Bible study, that the very first verse of Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not just using another term for Jesus. He's saying this one is the anointed one that the prophets were pointing forward to. There's so many texts we could go to where the prophets are pointing forward to this king. But let's look at Micah chapter 5. It says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. Look how this is pointing to this Davidic king. We see Judah, right? And Bethlehem. Yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Now this is interesting. His goings forth have been from old from everlasting. So now we're like, okay, this isn't like some ordinary guy, right? And then it starts talking to us about how this person not only has deity, probably, because he's from everlasting, but notice the next part. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth have brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed. That's a shepherding term. He shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall abide. Now look at this last part. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Where do we get this ends of the earth? Well, that seems to be reminding us of Adam who's supposed to subdue all of the earth 
and Abraham, who God promised that those who bless you, the nations that bless you, I will bless them. And so Micah is showing us that God would fulfill this Abrahamic covenant and bless all of the nations through this king because this king's name would be great under the ends of the earth. Now, there's so many different things we could go about in the prophets and how many different ways they describe him, but I'm gonna fast forward through that because all of them are pointing to Christ who is the messianic king. Matthew 16, 16, Peter declares triumphantly that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter is using kingly language. You're the promised king, Jesus, is what he's saying. And and the gospel writers, almost all of them, are going through great pains to show that Jesus is that promised king. Now, all of us, we start rolling our eyes back in our head when we read Matthew 1, right, and all the names. Let me help you. And I know this is a long time ago when we covered Matthew 1. But Matthew 1, like it's a sub, sub, sub point of Matthew 1 to talk about Rahab and all these other women that are Gentiles who God brought into his genealogy. The main point of Matthew 1 actually has two main points is that Jesus is the seed of Abraham and that Jesus is the seed of David. All those names are there to prove that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham and Jesus is the promised Davidic king from the lineage of David and from the lineage of Judah. That is Matthew's main point. He's saying this man is that Davidic king. And then we go through the gospel narratives and what's really interesting is that at the very like climax of the story in the gospels, which is Jesus's death, we would expect the gospel writers to be pointing to Jesus as a priest, right? Because he's shedding blood. He's atoning for the sins of the people. But what's interesting is in all the gospel accounts, they always include details to show us that Jesus was suffering not just as a priest, but as a king. There's so many little details in the gospel accounts. Right? Jesus was clothed in imperial purple. Jesus was given a reed to act as a scepter. Jesus was coronated with what? A crown of thorns. And as Jesus hangs dying, nailed to the cross, the Roman governor orders a sign to be hung above him. In fact, the sign, the Jews are upset in how he worded it, but it says that this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And the Jews are upset because they wanted him to say, he said he was the king of Jews. But the Roman governor says, no, he is the king of the Jews. What are the gospel narratives trying to communicate to us? They're trying to say to us that in a beautifully ironic way, Jesus is dying not just as a priest, but as a king. And that's why in the gospel of Matthew and Mark, they say, is this the son of David? Is he the Christ? Which culminates with Peter declaring, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And it should be no surprise to us that at the very end of the gospel, Jesus commands his disciples to go to the ends of the earth to subdue his kingdom. But it's not just Jesus who's a king. 
what we've discovered in all of these, that because we are joint heirs with Christ, that what Christ is in some way by his grace has been passed down to us as believers, that the status that Christ achieved by his own merit is blessed and given to us, not by our merit, but by his own merit. So Christ is the ultimate temple, but the church and the believer are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the great high priest, but we are priests as well. We believe in the priest or the believer. Christ was the ultimate sacrifice, but as Christians, we too are called to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. And it's the same thing with kingship because Christians have what I call a received kingship. This is clear in Revelation 1, verses 5 through 6. And this idea is actually repeated several times in the book of Revelation. Chapter 5, verse 10. Revelation 2 talks about it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it says, And from Jesus, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, what does it matter, this idea of king? What does it matter that you're a king, that Jesus is a king? What does that mean to us? That's why we turn to Psalm chapter two. Psalm chapter number two, my Bible says, God's son shall reign. It is a psalm reflecting on the ideal king. Is it David? Is it Jesus? Or both? We see several characteristics about this king in Psalm chapter number two. The first thing we see that the psalmist reflects on is that the king is the son of God, right? That's what the Davidic covenant says in 2 Timothy 7, that David would be God's son. He would treat him as a son. Psalm, look at Psalm 2, verse number 7. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. What's interesting about that word begotten is it's not actually speaking of a conceived son in the original idea, but it's talking about a relational uh, uh, thing with a son. And we see that Christ, when he is baptized, it's significant that the voice from heaven says What? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But it's not just Christ who's called God's son, is it? What does Jesus tell us in his sermon on the kingdom, the sermon of the mount, as he calls his disciples to become part of this kingdom? He says that if they're part of this kingdom, they can address his father as their own father. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed, be thy name. Think about this. The significance that's there when God says that through Christ, you are his son or his daughter. What privilege that is. What a relationship you have with the God of the universe and what a future that bestows upon you. Because the son of a king is destined for glory. But Psalm 2 also tells us that in the meantime, the son of a king or the daughter of a king is destined for suffering. What is the kingly expectation for this idealistic king? It's that they would suffer 
at the hands of God's enemies. Isaiah 53 reflects on this as well. Psalm 3 reflects on this as well. And really, I think Psalm 2 and Psalm 3 are supposed to be kind of paired together as different contrasts. But look at Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2, and it shows us that the king was kind of the fall guy for the nation's opposition to God. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's God, and against his anointed. Who's the anointed? The king. So their opposition against the Lord in heaven, well, they can't like shoot bow, you know, arrows out into heaven and kill God. They would if they could. So their, earth, their opposition against the heavenly king is taken out against the anointed king of the Lord God. And so what Psalm 2 is trying to show us is that the ideal king is not just one who experiences glory, that the ideal king is one who suffers at the hands of God's enemies. Now what's interesting is that David's life and many of his Psalms reflect on this idea of suffering, don't they? Before David is king, what happens? He suffers at the hand of Saul. That's not just like an unfortunate incident. That is part of God's plan. David suffers at the hands of his own son, Absalom. And what are we learning from scripture? We are learning that as kings, as the son of a king, we are destined for suffering. That's why the the first church, when they start to experience persecution in Acts chapter number four, they actually pray and quote Psalm two, verses one through two. As if to say this, God, we aren't surprised that we're suffering because you promised we would. But what's amazing about the suffering of a king is that suffering in the Bible for God's chosen people is always viewed as a portal to glory. That suffering is a necessary prerequisite for glory. And David's own life shows that, doesn't it? He had to suffer at the hands of Saul before he could become the king. And David is giving us a pattern that just like he would suffer and be crowned as king, the suffering of Christ was the prerequisite to his future exaltation as Philippians 2 shows us. And here's how this applies to you. Okay, this isn't just like cool Old Testament history. As a Christian, we want the glory, don't we? We want the blessing. We want the exaltation. We want things to go well and as we planned. But what scripture shows us is that the pattern for God's people is that suffering always precedes glory. And that the only glory that is promised to a Christian that, that, that can never be swayed is the future glory that awaits us post-death in the kingdom of God. And so as Christians, if we understand this idea of a suffering king, it prepares us for the fact that this life will include suffering. That if we are followers of Christ, we are called to follow his steps and his steps include much suffering. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And so we know that hardness and hardship is our lot in life as Christians. We don't look for the glory now. We look for our suffering now to allow us to inherit future glory. And that's what Revelation 21.7 says. 
In Revelation, there's this key term all throughout the book. It's a synonym for believers. And it always says that believers, they're labeled as those who overcome. What are they overcoming? Suffering and sin. Who will inherit all things? The people who suffer and overcome it. The people who don't quit when the Christian life gets hard. The people who don't give up on Jesus when he demands their life. They will inherit all things. And look at this, here's a kingly promise. And he shall be my son. What is the kingly expectation? It's that the earth is the inheritance of those who are God's king. Look at Psalm chapter two, verse number eight. It gives us the dominion of this king. And the dominion of this king is not just Israel. The dominion of this king is all of the earth. Look at verse number eight in chapter number two. God says this to the king. Ask of me and I shall give the heathen for thine inheritance. Now look at the last part of verse eight. In the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Psalm 72, eight is really a parallel Psalm to this one. And it talks about how the ideal king would have dominion from sea to sea and unto the ends of the earth. And so what the king is supposed to do is he's supposed to fulfill what Adam was supposed to do. And that is to have, to subdue and have dominion over all of God's creation. And look at this in, in chapter eight or chapter two, verse eight. Look at the end of verse number eight. Does that phrase sound familiar? The uttermost parts of the earth? Where do we see Jesus quote that? The uttermost parts of the earth. The great commission. Well, why on earth is Jesus talking about the uttermost parts of the earth and the great commission? Because Jesus is sending his disciples and us to conquer his territory through the gospel. God's vision for the king of Israel, this is written in a physical earthly kingdom. The vision for the king of Israel was that Israel would extend, the blessing of Israel would extend to all the nations. That what was going on in Israel would happen throughout all the earth, that the heathen would be converted, that the heathen would worship the Lord God. And he says, hey, listen, just ask of me and I would give it to you. And Jesus is fulfilling this expectation as he calls you and me to bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, to bring the heathen and the ends of the earth in submission to this king. What is the Great Commission? It is you as the servant of the king seeing in the here and now the earth subjected to his reign. So many Christians, they're looking for an earthly kingdom fix. Well, if we could just fix these laws and fix these politics, friend, come on, come on. Y'all live a lot longer than me. That is a silly hope to have. The only way the nations will be subjected to the king of kings is through the transforming power of the gospel. We are carrying out the reign of Christ as his gospel is preached and as one soul after another is submitting to him as their Lord. Of course, we know that one day the earth will submit to his lordship. That the commission we have, we may always feel like we don't get it done, but one day Jesus will get it done. 
because the king is shown to be the means of conquering evil. Look at verse number nine. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now listen, read the context. Who is them in verse number nine? Who is them talking about? Who is them? The nations, the heathen, right? So why are there so many battles and bloodshed in the Old Testament? Listen, it's, it's, God is not some evil person who just kills off innocent people. It's because in verses one through two, the heathen, the nations set themselves against the Lord. In fact, Joshua is where all this stuff happens, but if you're reading in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, God is saying all from the beginning of there, he's saying, you know what? The, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. They've set themselves against the king of heaven and God is giving them space to repent. But God, through the king, would conquer the evil nations that opposed himself. And then Revelation 12, 5 quotes this when it talks about Jesus being the fulfillment of this idea that he, that she should bring forth a man child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What is that talking about? It's talking about Jesus' first coming and his ascension. But Jesus will come back and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. In Revelation 19, 15, it quotes this verse again and says, this is the time when Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom is when he will rule the nations with that rod of iron. But believers share in this kingly rule. This is what God writes to a church in Revelation 2. He tells them to overcome, to hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works to the end, look at this. To him I will I give power over the nations. So what is the pivotal choice that marks whether we will reign with Christ or be defeated by him? It's this last one. Salvation for all who trust in him. Look at chapter two, verse 12. For us Americans who like our personal space, this one feels weird. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish from the way. Now, when we're talking about kings, Christians, what do you think the idea of kissing involves when it comes to a king? Right? Submission. Kiss the ring. Pope still likes to have people do that. He forgets he's not a king. But what is verse number 12 saying? that only those who will submit to the authority of the Son of God will be spared from a destiny of perishing and death. Blessed, look at the end of verse 12. Blessed are all they who put their trust in him. What is 12 saying? That the way God will bless the nations like he told Abraham is through their submission to the messianic king. Blessed or all those who trust in him. I hope this morning as we sing, it's Labor Day, it's a low day, people have vacation, I'm happy for them. Jealous sometimes too. But as we come together, church, we are worshiping the King of Kings. We are an outpost of the kingdom of God. And what we do in this house ought to reflect God's rule over his people. Let us, as we gather, come to our King and lift up our praises and in a sense, kiss the sun.
submit to him and praise him and honor him because the Bible is clear, blessed are those who do so. There's blessing in our submission and trust to God's son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, what it teaches us. I pray this morning the idea of your rule as king over us would be pressed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Help us, God, to leave today praising you for the wonderful king you've given us and the wonderful blessings we have in him. In Jesus' name we pray.